Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again, driving the ship solo as we continue on through our Battlefield Cinema movie May. Uh, this time we are going back to what I, I'm pretty sure is the oldest movie that we've yet covered on this podcast. As uh, we go back to the 1936 classic, question mark? Um, 1936 classic, Things to Come. Uh, and uh, no lightning round requests or anything. We're just going to jump right into this thing because uh, there's a lot to talk about in terms of uh, some of the background info for this movie. But I'll give you a brief synopsis for the movie and then uh, I'll get into some more details. Um, so this movie, uh, Things to Come, depicts a future history of humanity um, starting with a devastating world war followed by the emergence of utopian society and the exploration of space. So this movie covers four time periods in particular. Uh, it starts 1940, uh, goes to 1966, shows us 1970, and then ends in 2036. Um, in the first segment, it's the beginning of, uh, of the war, uh, of the war um, on Christmas Day, 1940. Uh, then when we go to 1966, it's uh, towards the end. We're getting towards the end of the, of the war. Um, and uh, the rise of a pestilence known as the Wandering sick Sickness, and this is in uh, 1966. In 1970, we go to the emergence of a utopian society and uh, the return of a particular character that we'll talk about here. And then in 2036, we go to our utopian underground society and the first manned space flight, and that's where the movie will end. Um, so that is, uh, that's our, our brief synopsis of this particular movie. Um, but I do want to get into some background for the movie because this is one of the things that I always find interesting about old movies. I mean, movies um, that really kind of even even are the very beginning or possibly even predate like the quote unquote golden age of, of Hollywood. Um, I always like to, to go back and watch uh, watch a movie or two per year from uh, this era from like the 30s and 40s. And one of the things that I always find very interesting about these movies is the people involved with them and how they were made and everything else. Um, just you're like, especially from a movie this early from 1936, you're talking about like a lot of firsts. Um, and we'll get to that here, uh, as I give you some background and everything, but I do want to start off with that. This movie is an adaptation of an HG Wells book from 1933 called the shape of things to come. And it's, it's very noted. It's very notable on um, this book and the movie, obviously, but, uh, certainly the book probably more so, um, in how eerily, and, and how accurately it predicted certain events and certain um, technological advances uh, that, that were to come. Um, most particular, again, this, is, this uh, book is from 1933, so it really would have um, not predated uh, the, the rise of the Nazi regime in Germany, but um, certainly would have, the, the book would have come out basically as, um, as that was taking shape um, in Germany. And yet, this movie very, very accurately predicted the almost down to almost down to the year, the date that World War II would in fact uh, break out. Um, I, I believe it, well in in the book and the movie it's 1940, but um, or I should say in the movie it's 1940. I think in the book it's a little bit earlier, um, but in the movie it's like 1940, and I think in the book it might be a little bit closer to the actual date. Um, in, in terms of when H.G. Wells uh, predicted World War II, I obviously they didn't call it. World War II back then. Um, it's also, in fact, like the another interesting part related to the exact date of the war was the sort of the um, the the, com the 
driving forces behind the war in that um, H.G. Wells also predicted that the 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 modern state, as he calls it, um, would be these totalitarian regimes and these dictatorial regimes were would be sort of the um, would be at the front and center of future war of this future warfare. And um, obviously that's, you know, it's, I mean, that really is dead on. The the nationalism that fueled, um, certainly fueled World War One but obviously fueled World War II uh, even more so is, is one of the hallmarks. Um, and, you know, I mean, you think about like the, the way that we think of the combatants, the, the belligerents in Europe, um, Italy with Mussolini, uh, Russia with Stalin, and obviously, uh, you know, Germany with Hitler. So, you know, it, it hit, so not only did it hit the date, uh, you know, or I should say really not the exact date, but the year correctly, it hit the sort of the driving force um, behind the war correctly. Uh, it also kind of, it also hit the, um, not that not this hadn't already been sort of used in some capacity, but it also um, hit on the importance of air warfare. Um, obviously, you know, we, you know, planes have been used since the Russo-Japanese War. But, um, in, you know, in some capacity, I, I think they were mostly uh, like scouting planes and things like that for that for that conflict. Um, they obviously get uh, weaponized in World War One. That's where you get like, um, oh, gosh, I'm going to forget the name of the aviator now. I'm going to look this up real quick before I lose it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the Red Baron uh, Manfred von Richthofen. Um, I, I, I mean, I knew the Red Baron. I couldn't remember his actual name, but uh, or I couldn't remember his actual name. Manfred von Richthofen. Um, you know, obviously we have, we've already had planes and things like that in combat, but, uh, World War II really takes the importance of air superiority to the next level. Obviously it's, it's very key in, um, in Hitler's advance through Europe and his Blitzkrieg. Um, you know, the, the bombing of cities, the, the complete and total bombing of cities was very, um, significant and important in World War II. And in fact, um, again, I, I, in fact, I, I should say, um, we had talked in a previous episode about how, World War One kind of ushers in the idea of total warfare, wherein um, all the all the resources and supplies um, and money and everything go into um, sustaining and um, propping up the the war effort, uh, which was something that really hadn't been seen uh, prior. I, I guess in Russo-Japanese War, the Russo-Japanese War and World War One were sort of the, were the first two in which this is in which this happened, and it's something that hadn't really happened prior. Um, and obviously we get, you know, this continues even more so on a much bigger scale with World War II. But we also get, um, you know, not just the money and everything going into um, into the war effort, but also the idea that they're really, the lines between like civilian, the lines between combatants and civilians really gets blurred or almost erased completely by the time we get to World War II. Because again, entire cities are being bombed out, um, you know, cities that, in previous conflicts, it wouldn't have happened that way. We would have kept the battle on the, you know, quote unquote, on the battlefield. Um, but in World War II, you know, entire cities get completely decimated um, and, and bombed out. And this is something, again, that was uh, a hallmark of this book, that the idea that um, that there were no longer, um, there were, the, you know, the safe havens were gone. Um, you know, the idea that like a... Um, an enemy combatant would just roll directly into a populated area of civilians who did not have weaponry and it would blow it up. It was something that uh, was fairly unthinkable at the time um, that H.G. Wells predicted correctly in this book and is shown in this movie, which will something that we'll actually talk about here in a little bit. 
Um, there's also some technological advances that they hit that uh, he hit on as well uh, in terms of uh, television, um, atomic energy, chemical warfare um, was certainly something that already existed, but um, sort of um, sort of the the advancement of chemical warfare. It's something they they definitely touch on in the book, or excuse me, they definitely touch on in the movie, but it's not necessarily like the hallmark of the movie. Um, but the television thing was very interesting. How when we get to 2036. Uh, how ubiquitous the TV screens are, um, which is very, very interesting. And again, we'll talk about that as, as it pertains to the movie here in a little bit. Um, then obviously space travel and, and space colonization. Um, it's uh, pretty interesting how... Uh, it's very interesting in how um, it's described in the book because it is very... It's very close to the way we think of space travel now, although it is... Not not exactly close, but there there's a lot of sort of the physics and ideas behind it um, were already kind of explored in this book, and um, it's just kind of interesting how um, how close uh, Wells was, but also how far off he was in the timeline. I mean, you think about it, our first space flight is uh, when did, I can't remember when the Russians went up, but it would have been basically just like a little over twenty years. Um, after the publication of this novel is actually when we have our first space flight. And then obviously uh, the space race kicks off in the 1960s. And by, um, you know, by the late 60s, we're already, you know, putting, we're already putting men on the moon. So, um, so Wells was off in the timeline of that, but his ideas about how space travel would, you know, how space travel would work and the fact that there's, you know, going to be a space authority uh, to oversee space travel as, as it turns out, we are, we're just sort of, uh, taking those those first steps in that direction with uh, with the U.S. Uh, space Force and obviously the uh, the various space agencies, both NASA and uh, the European Space Agency, and uh, and other space agencies, um, all have their um, all have their own sort of um, it's not like authority over space, but authority over their own space travel is is probably the better way to put it. Um, so that's some of the stuff that that the book covers, and like I said, we'll get into sort of how that translates to the film. Uh, here in a little bit, but just a little bit more Mac, a little bit more background. Just talk about the director here, William Cameron Menzies. Um, he's at this point in time mostly known as an art director and production designer, which is a title that he actually made up and is something now that is um, standard on every single film, TV show, and everything else. The idea of the production designer. Um, but I mean, he, he mostly known as an art director, but obviously is a is a well known director as well. Um, he actually won the first Oscar for art direction and I got to figure out how this worked. Um, but he won, he won the singular Academy award in 19. So it would have been like what, 1936 or 1938 or something like that with the first Academy awards. Um, uh, he won the first Academy award for art direction for two movies, uh, the dove and the temp, the dove and the tempest, which is just interesting, uh, that you can win one award for two movies. But whatever. Um, and then in 1940, he won. Again, I the early Oscars m- must have been just a, a kind of like, hey, you know, let's just give awards to people that we really enjoy. Um, but he won an honorary Oscar for his for his art direction and art and artwork on Gone with the Wind. Um, you know, and he won it for quote outstanding achievement in the use of color of the enha- for the enhancement of dramatic mood. So, uh, you know, back then, he, it, it wasn't obviously commonplace to have uh, any movies with color in them. Um, and, uh, you know, he did such a great job using the using the color in this particular movie that uh, the Academy felt like, man, 
this guy this guy really earned uh, earned earned something for making uh, for making Gone with the Wind so darn good. Um, so there you go, William Cameron Menzies, a very um, um, I guess you know one of the um, one of the groundbreaking uh, people in Hollywood uh, at this point in time. And then I just wanted to talk about the main uh, the, the main star. Uh, obviously, this a little bit more of an ensemble, but um, the main but Raymond Massey gets the most lines, and he plays the the two most important characters uh, in this movie. Um, so Raymond Massey, Canadian, of course. Uh, his father is the was the founder of Massey Harris, which is a, an agricultural agricultural machinery company um, out of Canada, which still exists today, although it's now headquartered uh, like in Georgia. And it's, uh, I guess if you're a farmer, if you're into farm equipment, you probably know this, but uh, Massey Harris still exists today, and it's called Massey Ferguson. Um, it's a very large company, so uh, there you go. And I, this is why this is why I really wanted to dig into the, the some of this background stuff before we get into the review and everything else. Um, is that uh, Raymond Massey himself is a war veteran of both World War One and World War Two. Uh, so Raymond Massey fought in Russia and in, on the Western Front. Uh, in World War One, for the Canadian Army, uh, where he was wounded and uh, summarily sent back to Canada, uh, where he, you know, got into he actually got into um, in his time in his downtime. I guess he'd already had always been like a theater interested in a person who had an interest in the theater, but was able to do some performances and stuff um, when he was back in Canada after after being wounded. Um, in fact, he came he came back to Europe to do some. Um, uh, you know, kind of the like like a USO type of uh, type of deal came back to entertain the troops basically um, towards the end of World War One. Um, in uh, he rejoined the Canadian Army um, in World War Two and was wounded in combat again, um, and then obviously was summarily sent home and given his um, given his discharge from from uh, the military for uh, his wounds. Um, and it's you know, and it's. And then that's when he actually picked up into, uh, you know, he really got into acting, obviously, and, and that this became his full-time career. Um, it's very funny because Raymond Massey is very noted for playing a lot of historical American figures. Um, one of his first uh, early notable roles was as the abolitionist John Brown, who um, was, I'm pretty sure this is the guy that was kind of a little bit insane. Um, you know, he his his abolitionist his his abolitionist plans really included a lot of sort of like outlandish kind of um uh plots and uh things with the high potential for violence um i think there's a, there was a show recently uh, about him um that it definitely takes some creative license but it does kind of get the the spirit of who john brown was accurately um he is very probably most famously noted for playing abraham lincoln um, he played him multiple times on stage um, in movies, and then later in in, in uh, TV shows and TV movies. Um, he joked that he was the only actor to be typecast as a president. And uh, one of his one of his friends, uh, another actor, said, uh, "quote that Massey would not be satisfied with his Lincoln impersonation until someone assassinated him." Um, that's how like closely tied at this point in time he was to, uh, and how how good his uh, portrayal of Abraham Lincoln was. Um, in fact, it was so good that in 1940, he was nominated for an Oscar for, uh, you know, lead Oscar for um, playing Abraham Lincoln in the movie Abe Lincoln in Illinois. So there's there's a little bit of background before we get into the rest of things here. Um, 
just thought all this was interesting. And again, one of the things I love about watching these old movies is is this sort of history of these people. Like, it's it just they existed at a time where very rarely are you going to, you know, very rarely are you going to find nowadays a, um, a a person who's the veteran of two different wars who goes on to be nominated for an Academy Award. Um, just not something that happens very often. Um, <laughs> so it is interesting to to dig into the history of these very, very old movies. All right, I'm just going to give you the cast lineup uh, real quick here and uh, get into some of the kind of the oddities of this movie. Uh, that if you're again if you're not like paying 100% attention you might like miss uh right off the rip. Um so like I said, uh Raymond Massey is our main character John Cabell, but he also plays his own grandson Oswald Cabell. Um so yes, they Raymond Massey is playing two characters, um the the grandfather and grandson John and Oswald Cabell. Uh Edward Chapman is playing the same deal. He is playing a grandfather and grandson. He is playing Pippa Passworthy in 1940, and then he's playing Raymond Passworthy in 2036. We have Ralph Richardson as a great character, um, and one that we're going to talk about a lot here, or a lot coming in a little bit here, plays a character called The Boss. Uh, Margareta Scott plays The Boss's wife, uh, Roxana Black. Cedric Hardwick plays, plays Theo Tecopoulos, um, a, an art, a disgruntled artist in the future. Maurice Bradell plays Dr. Edward Harding, someone that we actually see in 1940, and then we see um, we see again in the, the 60s and 70s um, struggling. Uh, Sophie Stewart as Mrs. Cabell, uh, Pearl Argyle as Catherine Cabell, and Kenneth Villiers as Maurice Passworthy. Uh, so that's your cast. Uh, there's obviously some more characters than that, but um, this is your main cast, your top-billed cast. So let's get into the review of this movie now. And overall, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Um, I kind of, when I introduced the movie, I said like classic, kind of like, you know, with like a question mark at the end. Because I'm not 100% sure this has the same, um, this has this has had the same uh, impact as something like Metropolis. Which is it's actually kind of funny that I'm, I'm mentioning Metropolis because I guess... Um, H.G. Wells hated that movie and, and hated uh, Fritz Lang. Um, so it's just it's just kind of funny, even though this movie takes some takes some uh, good notes from Metropolis, Metropolis and applies them here. Um, it's, it's not a movie like that, but I think it is an important movie when you are talking about... When you are talking about, like, early cinema and especially early war movies. I just find it very interesting that most of the early war movies are all very much or I shouldn't say all but most of them are very much anti-war movies um you know the original all quiet on the western front is an anti-war movie this is an anti-war movie um i i guess i'm i guess part of it is i guess part of it is that um you know prior to you know prior to world war one or world war two excuse me you have a lot of people that were um you know that vividly remember obviously world war one um and very in the case of someone like Raymond Massey and probably a lot of other um, actors and uh, people who were involved in, with uh, with making movies at this point in time probably had even experience in the war, uh, right? Especially if um, if we're talking about you know this is this is pre um, Hollywood obviously exists uh, and they are making movies at this point in time, but it, Hollywood has not become the powerhouse that it becomes uh, after uh, after World War Two. So, like, a, especially a lot of these actors who were English or French 
or Italian actors or whatever, they very, very likely, um, you know, you know, not only did they experience it up close, they very possibly fought or participated in some capacity in, in World War One. So I guess it's not totally shocking that the first movies to come, the first war movies, um, major war movies to come out of Hollywood or to come out of uh, cinema at this point in time are, in fact, anti-war movies. Um, so, you know, this I, I really enjoyed this movie. I will say that this movie is extraordinarily blunt. Um, I think that it's... Um, I, I, I'm fine with that. Like, I'm fine with the very overt messaging. I think this is one of those things that it's just a sign of the times, more so than anything else, more so than... Um, more so than... Uh, Menzies um, need to to push a particular message. I think this is just how movies and things were made at this point in time. Like if you go back and watch, uh, you go go back and watch any old movie, especially something from uh, the pre uh, golden era of Hollywood, and the dialogue is different. The way things are shot are different. Um, the the style of you know the camera placement just all kinds of everything about the, these movies is very different um then when you get to the the 50s and especially when you get to the 60s the way that films are filmed really drastically changes quite a bit um that's really when you the the 1960s um, i guess you could even really kind of start in the in the late 1950s but uh, the 1960s is really when filmmaking makes a lot of significant changes i mean just you know think about like um 2001 a space odyssey is only like 30 years after this movie essentially 35 years three six years whatever after this movie essentially and how wildly different that movie is than compare compare it to a movie from you know compare 2001 a space odyssey then to a movie from say 1999 um or even like you know even you even go a little bit farther up than that those movies have significantly more in common than than things that were made in the pre-golden era. So I think I think the overt messaging is more just that's just how they made movies and just how they set movies back in that point in time. But I think I think um the bluntness uh, as someone watching this movie now, I think the bluntness actually helps to paint a very spooky picture. Um uh and and actually sometimes a very depressing uh picture as well. So uh so the movie opens up in every town um literally it's just it's called every town um but we can just go ahead and assume that it's like uh, it's london uh essentially i mean it's definitely england um and it's um you know it's christmas it's christmas day i guess christmas night and people are out uh you know they're out uh, doing the your typical christmas shopping uh looking at uh you know buying things buying food there's some people out uh, going to the cinema Going to the going to the theater, um, you know, general merriment uh, across the across every town, uh, every town's town square, and uh, in the midst of all this merriment, uh, up in the background, everywhere are those like big sort of like sandwich boards and the kind of oversized like newspaper um, newspaper front pages, um, you know, with war is coming, Europe at war, Europe mobilizes. Um, you know, when will, when will war, when will war break out? Like literally plastered all over the place. Uh, there's even like one where there's kids drawing, um, in chalk, Merry Christmas on the ground and on the wall right next to them are all these posters, uh, about the dangers, you know, about the dangers of being in, in the need to be prepared for war, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, again, it's, it's very blunt, 
but it is this sort of very spooky juxtaposition uh, when when you when you're watching the movie to have like this, you know, what is supposed to be a gay old time, and um, right at the not even at the background, um, staring all these people in the face is the warning that war is coming. And in other cases, it's it is this very depressing sort of um, this very depressing sort of uh, idea that uh, that we're dealing with. Um, so like again, like a, a, this is like after the opening sort of setting scene where we're just seeing ever you know we're seeing all the people move about every town on Christmas. Uh, we actually go to the Cabell's household, and um, John's there with his family. Um, John's there with his family. Uh, a young, uh, a young uh, Pippa Passworthy is there. A young Doctor Harding is there, um, which is a little bit confusing to me. That feels like one of those things that might have been cut out slightly, but doesn't really matter. Um, they're just all friends. Um, they, I think that I think you know I think what it is they all live in the same uh, building, uh, and so like they know each other and hang out and do whatever. So anyway, it doesn't really matter. They're all together, and uh, Cabell's uh, great grandfather is there. So someone who's probably uh, very likely born in like the maybe like the 1860s 1850s even um and as the kids are sitting around opening presents presents you realize that all the presents are uh toys that are in fact toy soldiers or weapons you know little little uh tanks little uh cannons little guns uh the one the one, the one boy has a uh drum that's uh clearly you know like a like the war drum the little um You'd see the soldiers marching in formation and playing that little, um, the, you know, the guy has like a little drum strum around his chest, that kind of thing. Um, so those are all the toys that the kids are playing with, you know, kind of reinforcing this idea that like, you know, reinforcing the idea that like this is something that is that is so ingrained in us, that is so ever present that we don't even notice it. Right. In the same way that we that we're ignoring all of the literal signs of war. Um, we're also literally we're also ignoring the literal weapons of war in our hands um, that the, that we're letting children play with, and it's even grandfather even the grandfather even has a remark um, where he goes and it's obviously it's not about the toys it's about what the toys are um, it's not a very veiled line um, but it, again it, it it serves its purpose and it does give a um, does give you something to think about but his line is as he's looking at like a toy cannon he goes. I remember how much simpler my, you know, my toys were. They were just like a boat or, you know, um, they're a boat or a ball or some kind of toys. Like these toys are so intricate. I wonder if these toys today are too much for everyone. Um, Obviously we're, we're talking about the weapons of war. I wonder if these weapons of war are too much for everyone. And you could, you know, you could, you could take that back even farther. Um, you know, great grandfathers probably again. I would assume born probably like in the 1850s or 1860s, and um, the 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 way war was fought as again as I, we discussed previously, the way war was fought in his time was vastly different, um, vastly different than what war would become later in his lifetime. Um, it's uh, not that it was not that it was a good thing necessarily back in his time. But certainly it didn't become so encompassing and so completely devastating that it became uh, in World War One and then uh, later in World War Two. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I think the bluntness is something that, again, I think it's I think it is just sort of the way because of the way movies were made back then. It's why it's, it's why this movie is so blunt. But I do think it does have this unintentional sort of 
this unintentional effect of really sort of drawing your attention to certain things um, and making you take note of certain things like like the toys the kids are playing with, like all the signs in the background that are quite literally screaming at everyone, Jesus Christ, war is coming, what are you people doing? Um, there's even a scene with uh, with Cabell and the young Dr. Harding. I guess he wouldn't have been even a doctor at this point in time. He was a medical student. Um, there's even a scene where they're talking about uh, you know the coming war and directly behind uh, directly behind Massey or directly behind excuse me Cabell is like a picture of a uh, World War One era fighter plane, and you just begin to because of how blunt we're being with the how blunt we're being with the um, with the set dressing, with the art direction, with the lines of dialogue, with the things that everyone's using, just because we're being so blunt, it just like it, it, it's weird. It doesn't feel overwhelming. It just feels like we are settling into a surreal, a surreal reality. Yeah. Setting, settling into like this surreal reality um, that is, however, even though it is surreal, it is still very believable. So Christmas Day, 1940, the or Christmas night, 1940, the um, the war begins. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're mobilizing everyone. Um, but it, it's there. You know, there's this really funny, um, not funny in that kind of way, I guess, ironic sort of um, conversation that happens before um, the war breaks out. Wherein um, Cabell is talking to Harding about war, and um, Harding kind of goes, "Oh gosh, well, you know, because again, he's a medical student. He's like, well, if we go to war, what will happen to medical research?" Um, and Cabell says, "It'll stop." And he says, "Everything is going to stop. Like you don't understand. You don't understand. Like if we go to if war breaks out, everything is going to go to pot." And uh, Passworthy is sort of uh, Passworthy is our naysayer, right? He is our um, he's there. Flip my notes over real quick. Passworthy is, is our naysayer. He's the person that it's. Don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. He um, he even like to the point of saying like, you know, talking to Cabell. I, I I don't think they mentioned what Cabell does necessarily, but he says, listen, that war it's it's not going to happen. It's way over there anyway. Um, he's like, look, look on the like, look on the bright side. Your business is doing great right now. Um, there's nothing to worry about. He says, like, and really, the last war it wasn't even that bad. Um, so clearly, Passworthy was a person who was not involved in World War One or any capacity, um, other than you know, you know, who knows, maybe he was a kid or something. But he um, he even goes as far to say that you know when they're having a conversation and i know this is like at uh, at when they're opening gifts and stuff he even goes as far to say that uh, you know cabell says that war stops progress you know and and he's right like when you the idea of total war because every resource is going to the war effort um that means that means money um money resources and then obviously people even are being taken away from other things like medical research like scientific advancement etc cetera, etc cetera. um so Cabell, you know, says something like, well, war stop progress. And Passworthy says, no, 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 no. War is a stimulant. War is good. Like, it's going to, even if we have a war, it won't be that bad. And it'll really help get us going. Like, as as a country, as a nation, like, we'll we'll definitely take steps forward if we go to war. War is a stimulant. Um, so it is this sort of... Um, I, again, I, I wouldn't call I wouldn't call this uh, this early Pippa Passworthy necessarily some um, right wing warmonger necessarily. 
I, I just think that he is someone who is happier not to think about these things, who's happier to not consider what it means. But again, um, that all stops on Christmas Day as Christmas night as um, they are attacked and everything goes, you know, everyone, everyone's mobilized, everything goes to pot. And um, Passworthy even, you know, so Passworthy's sort of illusion about what, about what constitutes war and what war is and, and what it means for everyone is totally shattered because he was kind of expecting this sort of, again, thinking about what would have happened in World War One. Um, you know, we're, we're have, we have soldiers fighting on lines, um, you know, shooting at each other. Whereas now this war has started and the, this war has started and like over the radio, we get the de- some of the details about ships attacking cities uh, directly and um passworthy sort of illusion is completely shattered and he says he says well this isn't like he's upset he's not really upset that war has started he's upset that like well they're not supposed to do that they're not like this isn't just this isn't war if they come and attack us like this is something else this is bad this is um you know now that the war can directly affect him it's now bad obviously so um just just thought that was a very interesting uh a very interesting it really this takes place in the course of like maybe three or four minutes of the movie but i just thought that that was very interesting that um um you know we have our we have our naysayers and people who just don't believe um you know the things that are right in front of them um in fact like i think um there's uh there's this really great story from world war ii uh in england where um there was once germany began bombing england uh, there was like a mandatory uh, lights out curfew, and of course there are people uh, that uh, you know they, they're not going to do what the government tells them what to do. Um, so there are people that would then de- defy the the lights out curfew and leave their lights on, and the Germans then would literally, quite literally, fly over those people's houses and their blocks and quite literally drop bombs down their fucking chimneys. Um, because they basically painted uh, painted a target for them, um, so it is it is interesting that even in the face of eminent war and eminent disaster, there are still people that are like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Like it's not that big of a deal, or or they're naysaying, or they're just in complete defiance of the things that are actually happening to them and around them. Something I, I did really really like um, is that we actually don't. Throughout the course of the movie, we never really name who is attacking because it's unimportant. Um, if you want to get like we could there are some like details um, that give you some clues about it that it was probably initially Germany that attacked. So, hey, again, kudos to um, could have said Wells for getting that one correct. Um, but uh, it, it, it in all likelihood, it was probably Germany who uh, who began attacking. But um they don't mention it because it doesn't really matter because it's not about, it isn't about the enemy, quote unquote. It's about, um, it's about our reaction to the enemy. It's about the state's reaction to the enemy. And it's about how we're defining the enemy. Um, it's just, it, it so it, it doesn't really matter. I'm glad that we don't get like details that say like, you know, that like, uh, Germany sent, you know, this many bombers or whatever to, uh, to our shores. It's fine. It, it doesn't really matter who the combatants are. Um, and I, and I th- do think it's very important that um, sort of the the end of of this version of civilization comes with, uh, you know, we, we previously see the every town uh, town square, you know, filled with uh, people having a good time. 
and then the last time the next time we see the every town town square it's filled with soldiers setting up artillery batteries um and then everything bullets start flying bombs start flying uh the town square of every town gets absolutely demolished people are dying everywhere there are people getting blown up left and right cars are crashing the i'll tell you what for this point in time the effects are pretty darn good um you can obviously see the you know they do not even come close to standing up by today's standards but by those standards they do not look bad whatsoever in fact they look pretty good for the most part um and i really think this would have been um pretty in in a, in a very similar way to all quiet on the western front which was quite violent um very violent uh for the time in fact so violent that that's the movie that begins our rating system um in a very similar way this movie feels like it probably would have been pretty shocking to a lot of people um in 1936 not just because of the graphic content of the people getting killed and uh their town being destroyed but the idea that um again like we we really hadn't gotten to this version of total war yet where the where everyone is a combatant now um civilian and soldier alike so to have an enemy just completely destroy a city for no other reason than the fact that it was in the way you know you know it was just it was just another target would have been um kind of a jarring idea um obviously you know now it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that strange if um you know if a foreign power were to attack the united states it would not be strange at all if their initial attack uh, you know, was on a was on a big population center, uh, but at, at that point in time, it would have been a little bit shocking to think that while you were out on Christmas day, Christmas day or Christmas night, and the idea that um, and so that idea would have been kind of like just a little bit out of left field anyway. But also, I knew I forgot something here. Um, the idea that the enemy would attack on Christmas is also something that is. Um, would have been very, very um, uncouth, I guess, um, in, in in terms of quote unquote war etiquette. Um, you know, like it's you have the sort of idea of the safety and security uh, and the the sacredness of a holiday, a high holiday like Christmas, a religious high holiday like Christmas. That you know, there's no way anyone would attack on a day like today. Like they, you know, they they can't be that monstrous. They can't be you know, that um, depraved that they would attack a city, let alone a city, while it was celebrating Christmas. Um, well, they did. Um, because it doesn't matter. The rules are, have gone out the window um, by the time we get to the Second World War. Um, so it is it is something that... Um, it is just like another little piece of the of the puzzle there, why um, and why it matters that this, this first attack in the beginning of the war begins on Christmas as opposed to just any other day of the year. Um, putting it on the most, you know, one of the holiest days of the year does give it this extra sort of punch that um, war does not really care what, you know, what we are observing or what we're thinking about. It's If it's going to happen, it's just going to happen. And I, I do really like here that we go into this very prolonged sort of... Um, this this prolonged not really a montage but um kind of i don't know what you would actually call this but like we you know we after the initial destruction of the city in 1940 um then we go to 1945 and we're seeing you know this war drag on in 1945 in 1955 in 1960 um all the way up to 1966 and then 1967 um so i do like that it just kind of continues with the 
with certain advancements and it's interesting as as the war goes on you know we see tanks in the first sort of clips from uh, what would have been like 1940 1945 we see tanks in some in most cases it's models um and you can obviously tell they're models but definitely in some cases it looks like it's um actual like footage of of some early tanks um you know moving along probably some kind of training video or something um that uh that the british army probably took back in the day uh because some of the footage actually looks very real um if not then it was just excellent model work but i i think some of there's there's some real footage cut, cut in there same with um there's some aerial fighting that's obviously models but then there's some aerial stuff that is definitely something that was probably filmed by the british military at some point in time um and then it was used uh, cut into this movie a little bit but like i said i do like that we kind of we just have these like extended you know you see like the big uh, on the on the chiron you see like the years come down soldiers marching um you see as it kind of advances along and then we actually do stop to have like an interlude like there's like i said there's a plane battle and um one of the planes gets shot down and uh it's a, a it's a british british pilot shoots down um i think it i can't remember it might be even cabell i'm already forgetting this part of the movie i apologize um but he shoots down uh, a pilot uh from the from the quote-unquote enemy uh who and the, the the model crashing doesn't look great but again it's 1936 so whatever but he climbs out to pull this uh this enemy combatant out of his out of his plane and um the pilots you know the pilot like a little girl comes to see like what the calamity is it was like on a nearby farm comes to see what the calamity is and um the the enemy pilot is pretty badly wounded pretty badly injured and uh that's when we see all this gas that he's been dropping setting in and beginning to sweep over the countryside and uh he he goes to i love this part he gives um he has a quick conversation and then um he gives his gas mask to the little girl while the other pilot puts his on and they go to escape um the gas and get in the plane and escape and he's lying on the ground and um uh, again i think it, i'm pretty sure it's cable um or cabell um it's his name is spelled it's pronounced cabell but it's spelled cabal and whatever it doesn't really matter um as he's walking away he tosses him his gun you know give him his you give him a chance to to kill himself instead of being subject to his gas and as the pilot's lying there um as the pilot's lying there he goes um oh, i gotta find the line um he's he's kind of the gas is starting to get to him he's hacking and wheezing and he says he's you know he says i'm done i, I it's like I, all the gas i've dropped um he's like I, I probably killed her parents i probably dropped gas in her parents i probably killed her entire family and then i just give her my mask to save her life and he goes that's funny that's funny this war is a joke and then uh second later you hear the, the gunshot as he kills himself so kind of a you know what begins with kind of like a hokey moment with the the way the plane the model plane crashes ends really in a um i can't like say for sure but i feel like that would have been a kind of a shocking moment in a movie from 1936 to have to have a off-screen but still obviously an obvious suicide um happening um you know within uh, you know within the context of this particular movie it just I don't know for sure. That just seems like something that is from a much more modern movie than something from the 1930s. Um, so I do find 
this next part pretty interesting. So we go, like I said, we, we go from 1940 to 1945 to 1955. Um, and I, I, what I really find interesting is the longer the war drags on, after we get past the planes uh, fighting each other, um, we begin to regress in our fighting. And it's very clear that the, the war effort is creating uh, the to sustain this scale of war for this long. Like I said, it, it goes all the way up through up to 1966. Um, the, in like the first sort of chunk of these, um, of these segments, um, or this montages, I guess. And as we get, as we advance in the years, the weaponry and the tactics get more and more primitive. Not that we're using sticks and stones, but, um, no one's flying planes anymore. More than likely because there aren't any more planes. There are no more tanks because more than there, no, there aren't any tanks rolling because more than likely there aren't any tanks. Um, that to sustain any kind of war effort for this long eats up so many resources that they we're just running out of things to make new machine war machines and you know to have the means to sustain them in parts and obviously pilots and soldiers to fly and drive these things um, and the fuel needed to to power these things, people that can repair them. Um, so as the war quote unquote advances, society regresses each, every single time. Um, and then when we get to the, this sort of first montage ends in 1966 and you can very like easily see how, um, you know, and we're now in every town and every town literally looks like complete ancient ruins. Basically every single building is bombed out. People are living in sewers. People are living in the remnants of houses, People are, um, you know, looks like they basically have like one set of clothes to last their entire lives. And, you know, they're because they're like patched at various points in times at various places, I should say, um, on their bodies. And uh, they're obviously torn and tattered um, because, again, the war effort has eaten up all the resources. They're not making clothes. They're not making new clothes for people because that has to go to uniforms for the soldiers. Right. So 26 years of war has completely set uh society back you know potentially centuries um basically at this point and we get this uh bit in 1966 that's actually like twofold interesting um so we've uh we get this national bulletin that like it's like a uh like i guess like the remaining newspaper um i guess it's actually interesting for three reasons uh one that it's a piece of propaganda right so we get this um view of of this national bulletin newspaper um, that is, you can pull up the uh, the actual text and everything here. Um, it says September twenty first, nineteen sixty six. Um, price four pounds sterling. We will get into that in a second. And it says the end is in sight. Victory is coming. The enemy is near the breaking point and defeated on land and on sea. Uh, have oh, excuse me. The enemy is near breaking point and defeated on land and sea. Have nevertheless retained a few aeroplanes which are difficult to locate and destroy. They're using, they are using the airplanes to spread the wandering sickness, a new fever of mind and body. Avoid sites where bombs have fallen. Do not drink stagnant water. So in 1966, which is essentially the, uh, the very end of this terrible war, um, we've graduated from chemical warfare, you know, just essentially dropping mustard gas everywhere. We've now advanced to biological warfare. Um, and now we're using germs to, um, to, to kill off our enemies and we are giving everyone something called the wandering sickness. Um, so that's interesting right there, um, that, 
you know, that again, we're, we started the movie with Pippa Passworthy um, being very concerned about, you know, the audacity of an enemy to come and attempt to attack its civilians. And now we are, now we are harnessing the power of the germ to, um, we're harnessing the power of the germ to now wipe out everyone that we can. Um, so we've gone from sort of the idea of like a, a, a more, I mean, I guess civilized war is, is an oxymoron. I like think a civil war in itself is an oxymoron. Um, but this idea that there are sort of rules of engagement are now being thrown to the side completely. Um, that it doesn't really matter. We're just going to try to eliminate everyone we can. Um, doesn't really matter who 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 gets swept up in this as long as no one is left. When we you know that that'll give us victory as long as no one is left. Um, so again, I, I also found this interesting because this is a piece of propaganda, right? The end is in sight. Victory is coming. And when we after we see this newspaper, we see what is left of every town. As I mentioned, it's just completely in ruins. It looks almost like some like ancient archaeology. So you know what it looks like? It looks almost like Pompeii. Um, just completely wrecked uh, from, you know, Pompeii was completely destroyed by the volcanic eruption and the pyroclastic flow that was, would have been like almost instantaneous. Um, and this is, it looks a lot like that, like where everything is just, everything has just been eradicated and it looks almost like it's frozen uh, in some like ancient time period. Um, so the idea that like the end is inside victory is coming, that we we have them, we, we have almost defeated them. Um, it's just this like, hilarious piece of propaganda and also this very hilarious pyrrhic victory right like what is the, even if you win this war what is the fucking cost like it has cost you everything to get to this point so i mean did you truly win just just a very interesting little portion here that brings us into the into the next uh the next longest bit of the movie um but that wanted to circle back so uh september 21st 1966 this newspaper costs four pounds uh four pounds sterling and to put that in perspective by again this would have this was meant to be shocking to 1936 audiences um and if you put it into today's perspective just to um uh, just to kind of you know to stretch like the uh, essentially 100 years here four pounds sterling now would cost you uh excuse me one pound of sterling or just one pound here um would now be 69 pounds um, so this newspaper essentially cost 283 pounds or something like 700 or 370 some dollars, um, American, um, to, sort of to give the, the additional shock of what has happened to our, you know, obviously the infrastructure, but also the economy has completely shit the bed. Um, now that newspapers cost several hundred dollars. Now, what's really additionally interesting about this, uh, portion of the movie, the 1966 portion is that um, we introduce the wandering sickness and um, you know biological warfare and straight up I don't think this was intentional on their part but uh, these are zombies um, the people get the wandering sickness and then they kind of get up uh, they get up and aimlessly wander hence the name of it the wandering sickness they get up and aimlessly wander around pass the disease on to the next person. And then they, uh, they're not attacking anybody. You know, they're not trying to eat them or anything like that. They don't, they don't turn into cannibals. Um, but, like, they are very much zombies. It's a very, um, again, like, I I don't think this was, like, some, this was, I, I don't think we could even remotely consider this, like, our first zombie movie. Um, but it is just kind of funny, like, looking looking at this particular portion through modern eyes 
that these people are unmistakably zombies. They are barely alive. They're getting up. They're trying to spread, um, trying to spread this disease to other people. And then they just kind of wander off and die. Um, so they are very much zombies. So that's an interesting little thing that just, again, that not intentional by 1936 standards, but um, certainly by our standards, that's what we would consider these people. Um, also interesting here in this portion, this is when we get introduced to the boss, the person who would become our warlord um, in the next segment in 1970. Uh, we were introduced to him in 1966. And he becomes the, the the boss is very much the embodiment of sort of the all the wrong things, right? Of uh, he he's a warlord, um, he's totalitarian. He is the idea of the modern state. In fact, later he refers himself as "I am the state," um, and he he comes into power um, here as sort of like the the ringleader of a of um, the ringleader of the uh, movement to, instead of trying to help or cure or figure out um, what to do about the wandering sickness, we're just going to kill these people. So he urges, he urges people, he urges anyone with uh, with a weapon to go ahead and uh, shoot people on site that have the wandering sickness. And this is in direct contrast to the efforts of Dr. Harding, who is now, uh, a, you know, a not an old man, but he's no longer in his 20s. He's probably mid forties, um, mid forties, maybe even 50 years old at this point. And Dr. Harding, of course, is emblematic of science and progress. He is trying to figure out what to do about this wandering sickness as people keep catching it. Um, but the state and the warlords and the warmongers instead are out there killing people, uh, making it almost pointless to try to figure out what is uh, actually going on with these people. So we have a, this little, this just little segment here. We have like a whole lot going on that uh, sets the table then for the, uh, for another shocking reveal and then a shocking return. So we advance to 1967 to find out, we get this um, title card, this interlude here. Um, and I'll read it uh, as it goes by here. And I can read all this and talk about this very openly because this is a public domain movie. Um, so here's the the title card that we get. No man has ever reckoned the ravages of the wandering sickness. Uh, like the black like the Black Death in the Middle Ages, it killed more than one half of the human race. No one who caught it survived. Only gradually did men realize that the epidemic was over, and that social vitality was returning. So we don't even actually like defeat the sickness. It just runs out of people to kill, right? There is no vaccine. There are no um, there are no orders that, at least there's no. Um, it's not mentioned here, obviously, or even hinted later in the movie. We we basically didn't do anything. We just let it run its course, and half the planet dies um, of it. So you know the war obviously, the war obviously began. You know began begins this social breakdown and begins sort of this arms race that leads to biological warfare. And then it leads to, um, you know, the worst pandemic in the history of humanity. Uh, but also because we have completely broken down our infrastructure, economy, and, um, you know, medical progress, medical research, as Harding was worried about as a young man, um, there is nothing to do about this. We just let this plague spread worldwide, kill everyone, everyone that it can. And then that is how we sort of, we don't win. We just survive, um, basically. 
And so that sort of heralds the end of the war, um, which now you know comes in 1970, is essentially the end of the end of the of the of war, well we call it World War II. Um, obviously, that's not what they were necessarily thinking about at this point in time, but um, that is the end of the this war. Um, the war is is now ended. However, when we get to 1970, we're living in a very um, you know sim- not even not even a, a full 40 years uh, from, or excuse me, 30 years from the start of the movie, we've gone from when we, now when we see the town square of, of every town, it looks very um, sort of 17th century agrarian sort of community with like uh, machines that are hand cranked. Um, you know, there's a town crier. It's, it's very, very antiquated. Um, even by like 1930 standards, everything looks old. Um, because we have completely destroyed uh, any progress um, and anything that would have helped move us forward is completely gone. But nonetheless, despite the fact that the the war is over, um, the boss, who again came into power by um, you know leading the bands of people to kill the infected, uh, uh, those infected with the wandering sickness, the boss is now the boss. He is in charge of everything. He's our local warlord. And despite the fact that... Um, Despite the fact that uh, we are done with one war, the boss is going to go ahead and incite another war with the Hill People. And again, it's just to sort of give you the idea of how far backwards this war has sent us. We went back from nations fighting nations, and now we have one collection of people in a bombed-out city fighting another collection of people in a bombed-out city over, um, I believe uh, the boss wants like the... The resources to make oil um, and gasoline for the remnants of his air force, which is like eight, nine planes or something at this point. Um, and he thinks those eight, nine planes are going to sort of uh, help help uh, him conquer the rest of the world, not realizing just exactly how small and meaningless his particular fiefdom is at this point. But interestingly enough, um, it's just like in the um, in the the National Bulletin propaganda poster or newspaper, whatever, that costs several hundred dollars to buy. Um, this portion of the movie opens up with um, our town crier um, writing, on a, writing on a board essentially the exact same message from 1966, that we're this close, we've got them on the ropes, we're almost going to win this war. And obviously he's talking about uh, the new war that they've begun uh, with the Hill people. So there's, you know, so this continual propaganda and this continual message of we're this close we've almost won look at all the progress we've made we've almost got them don't give up hope now um and it's just like well like what is there to even like hope for <laughs> there's nothing left and some of the more stupid things that are are happening in this and, and by stupid i mean intention like ironic or intentionally stupid right um not that they're like they don't fit in the movie or they're bad or something um we're introduced to um, the boss's fleet of mechanics, fleet of planes and their mechanics. The airplane mechanics are working on planes that literally cannot fly. Um, we have people holding on to cars that don't run. Um, society has moved so far backwards, but like, you know, we're still kind of grasping at these things that uh, these familiar things, but none of them work. There's no resources for them. Nothing can be done with them. Like it, they're, they're just basically almost use. They're not almost, they are useless. And yet we're hanging on to them as as though that they, these things are, are very, very important. Um, just found that very, very funny. And obviously, um, you know, when we do meet um, 
when we do meet the boss, and I, I, I love the boss. The boss is very much the personification of totalitarianism. He's the personification of a regressive social agenda. And I, I love it because he is, you know, he's shoot first, ask questions, never. Um, and he's living sort of, he is living the best version of his life under these circumstances. He is the one sort of taking advantage of all the things that the, the quote, that his state has to offer. Um, you know, he's the leader. He kind of has, you know, he has, um, he's wearing nice clothes that are, you know, everyone else is kind of in tattered clothes. He's wearing nice sewn clothes. He's waited on hand and foot. Um, you know, he has a, he has a lovely wife. He, you know, gets to eat every day. But even then, this is like, um, as his wife points out in a later conversation with, um, with John Cabell, who we'll get to in a second, even his wife is just like, listen, I'm not stupid. This life sucks. It doesn't matter that it's like, I am like the, the queen of this life. This life really blows. Um, so, you know, she's, she's smarter than, than her husband, um, she is essentially smarter than the state, but it's so. This is uh, in 1970. We get back to uh, John Cabell returns um, this time as a representative of a rational group of of scientists and philosophers and other other people um, uh, known as Wings Over the World. Um, John Cabell is obviously the personification of rationality and reason and progress in science and he's come back to sort of to you know tell everyone that like hey we um we're we're coming you know we're coming here to kind of give you the opportunity to join us or we will in fact just essentially take you over and you know the i i I love that the um you know he, he flies in in like one of the only working planes now in the world um, it's much more modern and advanced. Uh, his costume is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, he looks like a giant black question or b- giant black exclamation mark. Um, you'll I'll put a picture in this. You'll see exactly what I mean. But so he looks a little bit ridiculous, but it doesn't really matter. Um, you know that's future clothes uh, as far as people from 1936 are concerned. Um, but it, it is interesting that he makes the offer to the boss that like, hey, listen we can we can pull you out of this hole we can we can make things better for everyone but you have to give up you have to give up this attitude you have to give up this idea that the state and totalitarianism are the answer and instead of instead of at least sort of hearing them out it's just a resounding no we'll never do this um, why would we, you know, we can't give this up. This is, this is the state. This is our lives, even though they're shitty, disgusting lives in a shitty, disgusting city. Um, they, the attitude and the, the arrogance of this sort of regressive agenda will not, will not let go of what it has created, even though it's created something very, very shitty. Um, so of course he takes Cabell hostage and he, um, he gives a speech that, is eerily prescient um in in 1936 i'm sure it was impactful it's just so eerily prescient now thinking about it so he um so the boss gives this speech after he has imprisoned um uh uh, cabell and uh he's meeting with his um you know advisors and 
and yes men and they're having like a big feast to celebrate um to celebrate uh, i don't know like the beginning of the new war or whatever they're or maybe, perhaps I, I could be wrong maybe they've actually um i think actually at this point they have um won their uh, their brief battle with the hill people and they're celebrating and he gives this speech that again is just very hearing it now and i'm not this isn't exact but hearing it now just sounds this sounds like every regressive conservative alt-right sort of talking point um so the boss stands up to his men and toasts them and says who wants chemists um oh i'm sorry i'm in the wrong place here oh i'm sorry who wants chemists and everyone kind of like laughs and jeers and he says who wants books they just muddle i they just muddle thoughts and ideas in your brain who wants to travel what is wrong with our land isn't our land good enough and it was just boy that it's just one of those things i hear and i immediately just think of i immediately just think of of all these alt-right fucking lunatics who want to ban books who um are who question who question science and 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 medicine uh people who think that the world has nothing to offer them right like it is it's just very eerie how nearly a hundred years later this this quick speech by the boss has so much resonance and just reminds me of so many people um that are in the that are in the limelight and have a microphone today it's just very very interesting um that this that this speech is um is something is something from a totally different time but still uh reverberates today so um it, just advancing on here something else that uh, that i really enjoyed and found interesting here so after the um after uh the the people of every town and the boss win win his battle against the hill people they they get their planes they're able to make um gas enough to get enough of their planes flying and um uh you know they the boss's right hand man tells him um, you know, cause they like the, the next stage is like, they've got these planes flying. So the next thing is they're not like excited that like, Hey, we can go see what's going on in the outside world. The next thing is who do we attack next? And the boss's right hand man says, well, if we didn't try to fly and, you know, bomb people and use gas, then someone else would have, it's just this, um, you know, again, the messaging here is very blunt in this movie, but it is just sort of this idea that, um, you know, only, you hammers only see only see nails right like they only see things to be hammered and these people who are in charge only see warfare only only see things that, that need to be shot at right that that's just like what we are what you're dealing with when you're dealing with this sort of totalitarianism that there's there is nothing to be gained from there's nothing to be gained from flight other than um conquer other than to conquer something or totally annihilate something. That is the only reason why you would fly. No other reason. Um, and in fact, so much so that like when the boss sends off um, his pilots, uh, this is, there's another, I, I won't get into the scene. Wings over the world comes back and bombs everyone with a peace gas. But um, the boss tries to deflect the attack. And he even says to his pilots as he sends them up, you've been trained not to think. You've been trained to do. You've been trained to die um just another sort of another sort of not very not very subtle message about the the way that the state um 
the way that the state functions, the totalitarianism functions, and the way it tells its uh, its soldiers to function. Okay, I'll, I'll zip ahead here because this is this is getting a little bit longer than I wanted it to. Um, so obviously, Wings Over the World and uh, and Cabell are successful in again they they bomb everyone with a peace gas, which basically just knocks them out um, and kind of you know shows to, shows everyone that like hey there's a you know we didn't we didn't kill you when we attacked you we just incapacitated you because we think that there's a better way to do things so obviously everyone goes along with um once the boss actually dies because of like an allergic reaction to the gas but um but everyone um agrees that like hey you know this thing that we were doing wasn't working too well so let's go with these people let's let's go with the scientists let's go with the rational thinkers um so they do and it is successful they they do bring a utopia about um and we get a long montage of these gigantic machines building a, a new world um literally inside the earth um why specifically inside the earth i, I don't know um but um, that's where this new every town is is uh, underground and pretty interesting here that actually a lot of these um now i don't know if this in particular was described in the book or if this was the idea of William Cameron Menzies, but it is very interesting to note that the machinery that they're showing that is, that is um, digging underground to build the new cities um, is actually something that would come along years later. Um, like the drilling machines, they, they don't work the exact same way, but it is, it is interesting to note that that was sort of a, a, a prediction as well, that, the, not necessarily that cities would be in the earth. I think that's that's like a tale that goes back a long time. But the equipment literally used to um, tunnel and dig, like the equipment that would have been used to make the um, uh, the tunnel going from uh, England to France would have been this sort of technology. But it didn't even exist at this point in time yet. So just kind of interesting that they got that correct. Um, there's some segues in, um, in, in this montage of building the new world. Um, literally like two wheeled sort of vehicles that, I mean, they look a lot like segways. It's pretty interesting. Um, the factories are all completely automated. Um, again, something that would be, um, uh, you know, obviously they've, they had factory lines and things at this point for a while, but the idea of like a completely automated factory, something that was a, a thought that was very far ahead of its time, but we get the, we get the whole, uh, we get the whole new world being built underground and, um, despite the this long period of so we go from 1970 to 2036 so uh, what is that quick math 66 years of um excuse me 66 years of utopia and yet there are still naysayers um uh, and this time progress is again it's, the idea is about progress versus um uh you know uh conservative um regressive ideals and even in this era of uh, utopia um progress as its naysayers that this is where uh oh gosh i'm gonna butcher the name again let me go look at it real quick uh theotokopoulos is a as an artist oddly enough who um a well-known artist um who is the one that is against progress and i find this very very interesting that um i i don't again i don't know if this was any particular message simply because of how long ago this movie was made, but I do find it interesting that someone involved in the arts would be the person um, railing against, um, or someone in the arts would have a very regressive um, ideology. 
but I guess it's sort of maybe the idea of like arts versus science or uh, something along those lines. But it is interesting that um, that they they made it an art, you know, somewhat involved in something that it definitely has a more, at least in our current time frame, has a more liberal bend to it. Um, another so, uh, uh, God damn it, I keep doing this with the damn name. Uh, so Theotokopoulos, um, he he's talking with his friend as they are working on a giant sculpture, and um, and he decides that he's gonna. He has some people. He has some. He knows that some people will be behind him. So he decides to uh, go and and spread his particular message about progress. Um, you know about the the society's rapid advancement being too much and that we need to slow down. Uh, in particular, his ire is aimed at a space gun that we're now going to shoot because we are literally going to shoot people into space. Um, so the 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 way the space gun works is very incorrect. Um, and I guess in the in the book, there's more details about it and how it works. And the details in the book and the physics and everything are actually fairly um, close to how space travel would how we how we would actually be able to achieve space travel. Obviously, it's still incorrect the idea of a gun, um, but um, just interesting that uh, interesting that we are sort of the size and scale of it actually do feel like something that we that we would be using currently, which is pretty interesting. But anyway. Um, so, um, Theotokopoulos is railing against this and he goes to a studio and this is one of those things again that felt so very modern, um, for various, for very specific reasons I'll get into. He goes into essentially a TV studio and, um, he beams a message out for the masses and in like the, the town square of this new every town, a gigantic, video screen drops down for all the people uh projecting his image and um it's also this his message is also going into every single home people are listening to it on handheld devices and wrist wrist worn devices um, which is all very interesting um that they uh you know we were we were thinking about this years and years decades and decades before any of this became uh became real uh but it it wasn't just the you know the the technology stuff that that, that was very um that was a uh, you know very accurate but also we have an inflammatory media personality using their platform to push a regressive doctrine gee um i wonder if we have any of those people in in the media today i wonder if anyone like that exists uh just a very gosh and i know this isn't like that's not like a new thing like there are people at the advent of radio that were, um, that were pushing, uh, very, um, very regressive, um, very regressive ideas, uh, to, you know, to their budding audiences. So it's not necessarily new, but I think, but I think it just feels the echoes of this now just feel so fucking eerie, (laughs) you know, given how, um, given how direct, especially, um, Theotokopoulos is with his message how direct it is about hey things are it's it's almost I mean this is why um, this is why like in the current era um, why people who uh, put themselves on the far right and the, or the alt-right or whatever you want to call it this is literally what he's saying is exactly why they are lashing out now 
um, that progress is moving too fast and we are not at the center of it. And it doesn't really make, it doesn't really like, we don't feel comfortable with it. Um, it's just so funny that he's saying it so plainly. And like, it's almost like, it's almost like you wish people now would just say that for the reasons why they have such aggressively, um, aggressively, almost like dangerously conservative ideals. So anyway, the regressives, oh, but here's another thing that, um, that, that definitely doesn't, that definitely feels like it might be about something that happened recently. Uh, the regressives are picking up weapons and marching on the Capitol to, oh, I'm not the Capitol, excuse me. Uh, they're marching on the space gun, um, to destroy it. And guess what? The police aren't ready to handle the mob, um, because they've never really dealt with anything, anything like this before. Um, that's definitely something that maybe has happened recently as well, but it's anyway, it's very interesting here that they, um, so they're able to successfully launch. Um, that's just sort of an interesting sort of, I, I feel like there would be more conflict, uh, in a modern movie. Again, I think this is, um, there's just some, besides the fact that it's in black and white, um, obviously I, this is just one of those hallmarks of a, a movie from a time gone from a bygone era, excuse me, that they're able to successfully launch the, uh, the space gun and the, uh, brief regressive, um, rebellion is essentially quelled, uh, or at least so it seems. Um, and then we get this good speech. Um, so the people that go up are, so Oswald Cabell, as I mentioned before, his great, he's Raymond Massey's playing his, his own grandson in this movie. Um, and same thing with um, uh, it's now uh, Raymond Passworthy, uh, Edward Chapman playing his own grandson in this playing Pippa Passworthy's uh, grandson in this movie. Um, so it's Passworthy and Cabell again um, discussing, uh, you know, like at the beginning of the movie, at the end of the movie, after the successful launch of their children um, of uh, Catherine Cabell and Maurice Passworthy are our two first astronauts. Um and it's just, you know, so we're having a, a little circular moment here where we have uh, Passworthy and Cabell discussing um, discussing progress and discussing uh, whether or not, excuse me, discussing whether or not um, it, they did the right thing. And, you know, Cabell gives this great line about like, you know, if we're, we're, we're going to suffer anyway. We might as well suffer for greatness and progress and that we have to like grab every little scrap of, of happiness that we can. So why not, why not celebrate and grab those scraps of happiness in these things that really, really matter? And I think he, um, oh gosh, I gotta look this up real quick because the line's really, really good. Sorry, could, uh, sorry, Cabell gives this line that is, um, really great here. I'll read it, I'll read it directly off of the, um, off of the Wikipedia page here because it's just, it's, it's very well done. I'll, I'll set the final scene here. I'll, so here. Uh, so Oswald Cabell's daughter um, and uh, Passworthy son are the first ast astronauts. As the projectile is a tiny light in the immense night sky, Cabell debates the desirability of human progress with Passworthy. With, with Passworthy, uh, Passworthy's concerns that humanity shall never be able to rest. Cabell retorts that humans have no choice but to conquer the universe and its mysteries. Uh, he says to Passworthy, "All the universe or nothingness." Which shall it be, Passworthy? Which shall it be? All the universe or nothingness? So if we are going to... If we are going to do things that cause waves of unrest and cause uncertainty and cause people concern, do we... 
we might as well push forward with with them if they are if they are things that lead to um to progress and they are things that lead, that lead to utopia i mean they they made that this society made that decision uh, back in the 1970s right to to go ahead and go forth with things um as as dangerous as they might have seemed and it worked out like they they literally found and became utopia and so this is their next challenge the next challenge then when you have utopia is how to how do you what is the next step from utopia right there has to be more out there you can't just like rest in your laurels so it, there are more things to be done um there are more mysteries to solve there is more out there in the universe um you know and you could kind of i kind of the ending was a little bit i don't want to say um not confusing but the ending felt a little odd just a little bit odd considering everything we had just seen because it did feel like it was while they're while we're talking about a utopia that is advancing yet even further by you know pushing itself into the stars it also did feel a little bit like well we're still conquering things like isn't isn't that sort of the idea that like we wanted to leave behind you know 60 years ago because of all the damage that quote-unquote conquering caused so i i'm not like 100 sure on on the idea of like conquering the universe but i do think that going for i do think that when it comes to progress there is sort of um i think you do have to look at it as like an all or nothing all the universe or nothingness kind of proposition that you do either go full force forward or you know the, that one weak link in the chain is the thing that's going to hold you back so um i do love that ending speech even though even though the ending itself feels a little bit mm, again i think this is just more because it's a 1930s movie and not a modern movie i think a modern movie even if everything were the same otherwise beat for beat would have a the ending would be a little bit different um so yeah um some other things that was that i did find interesting uh in this final scene, um, in well, in, the, in this final like segment of the movie here, the last like ten minutes, uh, Cabell flies in a helicopter, and it is a very, not only is it like a very modern looking helicopter, this looks like something, this looks like something that, it's I mean obviously it's a prop and it's probably some kind of cart or something that they're pushing when he when they show him landing, but. Um, but it looks like it's, it, and apparently it is, of like a very, it's close to like a, what a modern, it's close to like a modern era helicopter design in terms of its, obviously the rotors in the wrong place, the rear rotors in the wrong place, the stabilizer rotors in the wrong place. But the way that it, the way that it, it, it sort of, the way that it flies, the way that it moves is all very like correct to how a helicopter would actually function it's form the again the way that it's actually physically built is more or less very close to like a modern helicopter and i believe this would have been um let me look this up real quick this would have been about three years before the first practical helicopter flight um and it also and then it would have been um uh, four years before the first like untethered free flight uh of a helicopter took place so um, not that it was like not that it was like super duper, you know, long after, but it is very interesting that the um, that the way that the aircraft that this particular craft work was kind of was very very similar 
to not even helicopter designs that would have come along years a couple of years later helicopter designs that would have come along a lot later it was actually very similar to those um also something that was that really struck me was the um so the uh, wings over the world the collection of the scientists that usher in utopia um they're up on these they're literally like in these giant flying craft and these giant flying craft do look like single wing airplanes like bombers um a little bit different obviously um they're more stylized um but the the their general shape the general shape of these very big ships um is something that you would is something that would probably have been an early at least an early modern early model of some single wing aircraft that would come you know 40 50 years later um just just found that very interesting and I and I did find as a bonus, uh, I did find it interesting. The Wings Over the World is based in uh, Basra, Iraq, uh, which would have made sense. Iraq is the cradle of civilization, um, so it only makes sense that the new civilization would then uh, begin uh, where uh, civilization first sort of sprang up in uh, in Mesopotamia in the Fertile Crescent, um, some you know thirty forty thousand years ago uh, or longer than that actually. So found all those little tidbits there very interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to give a complete almost blow by blow there with the movie, but I, like I said, I really enjoyed this movie, um, and I, I really found some of the I found a lot of the um, a lot of the messaging to be uh, while it was very much on the nose, um, I found a lot of it to be very um, just the way it, it echoes into now, um, very very intriguing, and I guess that's. You know, when you have someone, a genius like H.G. Wells writing a story, um, you know, really smart people pick up on these things and, and know how to and know how to make their stories um, flexible for any particular point in time. Obviously, certain things don't um, certain things don't translate, but the the general ideas of warfare and the way it gets in the way of human progress and the toll that, that it takes on obviously the individual, but also the state and um, society and culture and all the things that we think of as being like, as making us up as, as a, as a people, um, you know, that idea is, is timeless and will remain timeless, you know, keeping this story, both the book and the movie um, relevant um, in, in the decades and probably centuries to come. But, really enjoyed this. It was a good watch. Like I said, this is a public domain movie, so you can watch it on YouTube right now. Um, it's unlike a lot of movies of the era. Like a lot of times we watch a movie from like the thirties or forties, depending on what it is. If it's like an epic or something, it's, it's like, those are like fucking three hours. Like grapes of wrath is like three and a half hours or something. Um, this one is a nice tight 98 minutes. Um, there's, um, there's a there's some nice uh, you know breaks in between everything, uh, you know with the with the little interludes and title cards and, and, and scrolls and things. Um, so there's a, there's definitely a lot here to like. It's one I highly recommend. And like I said, it, it, sort of at the top, that I do think it's interesting that you know we we went from this um, period of romanticizing the idea of warfare a little you know to a certain degree in early novels and things. And when we finally get to cinema and we're making, we begin making war movies, they're obviously very much anti-war movies. Um, those are like the first things that really come across. 
And I think it's because, you know, really the this is our, our first chance for people who have no, never seen combat before. This is the first chance to show exactly what it does. You know, if you were from, you know, it's if you're from like a, a rural place in, in America, um, you know, that is as of yet had been untouched by war, you, you know, you're too, you were too young to understand what the Civil War was. Um, you know, you, you, you never obviously you never fought in, in World War One. This would have been your first chance, one of your first chances, along with All Quiet on the Western Front to see exactly what warfare was. And it's awful. It kills every it kills everything in sight. It's uh, it's unrelenting and it leaves people um, completely broken and it leaves the world kind of just a little bit of a worse place. So I, I, I don't think that it's coincidence that when it comes to showing what war is about, that the first war movies are showing you, they're not showing you that it's like this heroic and noble endeavor. They're showing you that it's awful and it will just completely ruin everything that it, war ruins everything that it touches. So that's it. That wraps up this episode. Um, my review of Things to Come from 1936, directed by William Cameron Menzies, story by H.G. Wells. Uh, go see it. Um, but in the meantime, um, that, that does it for us. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Uh, we will have one more episode, one more Battlefield Cinema episode, uh, um, I believe on Tuesday that will be hitting as the, uh, appropriately enough, after Memorial Day. Um, and as the as we wrap up the month, uh, we'll get one more Battlefield Cinema episode in. So stay tuned for that. I haven't picked a documentary yet. I'm going to watch a war documentary. Um, I feel like that'll be a little bit... Um, that'll make for a briefer episode. It's not like I have to get into plot details and stuff necessarily. Um, so I'll do a, uh, finish up with a war doc and also kind of like do a, a general wrap up for everything uh, that, that, uh, that we've gone over this whole month. So... Again, thanks for downloading and listening, and we will catch you next time.